All right. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, everyone. How are you doing, Hannah? I'm doing all right. Um, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole lately watching... Oh, my God. Of, <laughs> of what? Yeah, that's been happening a lot lately in this quarantine. Um, I do it, too. <laughs> but I want to know what yours is, so maybe I can find a new one. <laughs> the latest was looking up uh, videos of... It was suggested to me first. It was... I forget what the YouTube video channel was called. It's of this woman who sells her home in the city, moves to the country, uh, gets a simple cottage, and, you know, just promotes the simple life. And she goes about her day, like, making everything by hand, washing strawberries in the wilderness, uh, drying flowers for homemade tea. And I think that in the quarantine with just, you know, like constantly being at my screen, either working or watching TV, this video was so peaceful and appealing. And I... Cute. So this is an actual woman? This is an actual woman. And then YouTube started suggesting, of course, all the people who were doing this kind of situation where they were going into the wilderness, building themselves a tiny home. Um, Cute. Yeah, it was really adorable. But at the same time, I realized that maybe I just need to take a little break or take a few breaks from work. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, please don't... (laughs) Please don't move into the woods and start washing strawberries in the river. Oh, my god! Well, that sounds amazing. I would really miss you. (laughs) I would really miss you, too, Anna. So a reminder for everyone out there, if you're staring at screens too much, go outside. Go on a walk. Yes. Wear your mask. Oh, my God. But take a break. The number? (laughs) Yes, wear your mask. The number of times I've been sitting at my desk and, like, I just will start to not feel good. I'll get really sleepy Completely. And, um, a lot of times I'll be like, maybe I should go for a run or even just a walk. Like getting outside and moving around um, helps, makes me feel so much better. I'm like, oh, it's not that I'm sleepy or I don't feel good. It's just that I've been sitting and staring at screens for too long. Yeah. Taking a break is so important. And it's harder now in the yeah. quarantine because, you know, we don't have our coffee breaks during the day or walking to a meeting, um, walking out to get grab lunch real quick with uh, coworkers. So... Yeah, I definitely exactly. feel what you're feeling. It's harder because breaks are not as easy to just find. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like pouring a cup of coffee takes 30 seconds. And maybe it's not a bad idea to take five minutes. Exactly. And yeah. drink it and then reset and get back into it. Stand outside, breathe the fresh air. Yes. So I also went down a YouTube hole, which is funny that you did too. <laughs> Let's hear it. So I really like vintage clothing. I always have, but I've only ever, like, dabbled in it, skimmed to the surface, if you will. So I started watching a lot more YouTube videos about just, like, women. I've specifically watched women because I am a woman and that is the style I'm trying to emanate. Um, Of just women who use vintage style and, like, how they get it and that kind of stuff. And it's just so fascinating. I really love to watch it and just, like, learn about old clothes I bought some vintage stuff at Etsy that off of Etsy that I really really like. Ooh. So I know I'm trying to get more into the world of vintage clothing. Aside from the fact that I just think the clothes are so cool, I particularly love the '70s. Um, you're also it's not it's I think I like the idea that you're recycling items that somebody else had. You know? Yeah, I love that. Uh, like this belonged to somebody. Exactly. It has a story behind it, and it does. you're bringing it back to life. Exactly. Like, you're giving it another shot. Exactly. Anna has some pretty neat pieces in her wardrobe. The one the one that comes to mind is that uh, bomber jacket with a sunrise in the back. It's it's so oh pretty. You're so nice to me. Hannah's so nice to me. I sent her... Uh, I do have that jacket. I absolutely love it. I did buy that on Etsy. It's not real vintage, though. It's what's called a re- vintage reproduction. So it was made by an Etsy seller, but it's new. <laughs> Very um, but cool. But I sent her this jacket. <laughs> I sent her this jacket. It is a vintage 70s cheerleading jacket that has the name Holly embroidered <laughs> on the front. <laughs> I sent it to Hannah. I was like, I don't know if I'm just losing my mind, but I really think this is cool. Like, is this cool? And Hannah was like, no, no, I think it's cool. I was like, all right. <laughs> thank you. I bought it. It's good. It's, it's coming to me in the mail. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to wear this to work. And people are going to be like, who's Holly? <laughs> not only am I not named Holly, I have never been a cheerleader. 
uh, we're pretty good enablers for each other. We got each other's back. <laughs> I was like, is this ugly or is it as great as I no. think it is? <laughs> Anna, you've got a really great sense of style and you are very good at putting outfits together. So I'm pretty confident oh it'll God. work out great. Hannah, <laughs> you are too. And the people who Thank can't you. figure out, who get confused by Holly, they just don't get it. <laughs> they don't appreciate it. In the words of Ariana Grande, thank you, next. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Should we actually give the people the content they signed up for today? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Rather than just my adventures into vintage and Hannah's moving to the woods. <laughs> um, Anna, since you came up with our awesome podcast uh, topic, do you want to go ahead and introduce it to everyone? Yeah, so I'll give you a little drum roll. Nice. We are, <laughs> we're going to talk about Arecibo Observatory. That's right. I'm not, I don't want to jump ahead, but it's been in the news a lot lately, and I felt like it was a good topic to jump into the new year with. Well, we already had one already. The second topic to jump into the new year with. <laughs> yeah, I got really excited by this one. Anna told me about it because it allowed me to get into research about uh, radio telescopes because Arecibo includes a radio telescope. So that was pretty fun. I'm excited to hear all about how the telescope works, Anna. Yeah. Shall we get started? Let's do this. Should we introduce ourselves first? Yeah. Good idea. All right. So I'm Henna. And I'm Anna. And this is But, but it, it Is, is Rocket, Rocket Science. Science. So just really quick, Arecibo is an observatory and radio telescope that is located in Puerto Rico. I'm going to talk more about the history of it, but Hannah's going to tell us how it works. That's right. Let's get started. Back when I first heard the term radio telescope, my initial response was, huh? I thought about... (laughs) (laughs) Mine was too. Right? (laughs) Because immediately I thought about my car radio and how tuning it to the frequency, like in particular for me, it was like 105.7 uh played my jams but i didn't see how the radio could get me pictures of space so the concept of radio telescope really confused me when we think about telescopes growing up we think about a standard optical telescope the long skinny telescope on a tripod that you point to the moon and it focuses and amplifies visible light using mirrors however visible light is such a limited range of the electromagnetic spectrum Does that ever scare you sometimes when you're like, oh my God, what we can see is just so tiny compared to what is actually out there? Completely. Or is that just a me thing? No, completely. It's crazy. It's crazy. And what I'm about to talk about radio telescopes, telescopes, what also scares me is things that we can't see, you know, that is out there, but we can capture. So going back to visible light from what we capture in optical telescopes. Visible light is such a limited range of the electromagnetic spectrum. The EM spectrum is a range of frequencies of different types of electromagnetic radiation. You may have heard the terms gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet radiation, infrared, and radio waves. These are all part of the electromagnetic spectrum, but each of these occupies a different range of frequencies. So going back... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, it's just if you look at the whole line, like it just represents different chunks of the spectrum. And the one that we as humans have evolved to be able to see is visible light. That's right. And this line that Anna is talking about, you can go Google the image of it if you're not familiar with it. And you'll immediately see what we're what uh, we're referencing. Yes. Please look that up if you've never seen it. It's, I think, a really good visual aid. Just Google light spectrums. All right, so going back to visible light, we are observing what what visible light can provide for us. Visible light is a form of ultraviolet radiation, and it sits at 430 to 750 terahertz with wavelengths of 400 nanometers to 700 nanometers. That is a very tiny wavelength. I was about to say, what what is a human hair? Oh, that's a good question. Human human hair width in nanometers um a human hair is eighty thousand 
to 100,000 nanometers. So, that is 10 times smaller than a hair. Do that math right? Um, what is it? What? How many nanometers is a hair? 80,000 to 100, then 20,000? 80,000 to 100,000. I guess it depends on the person in the hair. So if we do the lower number divided by 400. No, I was wrong. It's 200 times smaller than a human hair. No, I was wrong. I was right the first time. No, I was right. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is Anna. You ever feel like you have the memory of a goldfish? Like I'm switching between two tabs and the second I click away from the tab, I've already forgotten what it says. Oh my gosh, I totally get that. <laughs> it is 200 times smaller than a human hair and I am okay, even though it may seem like I'm not at this moment in time. <laughs> Oh, I love that. All right. So, yeah, great, um, great number to find for us, Anna. We got there in the end. <laughs> All right. So one thing to note is that a long wavelength is associated with a low frequency and a short wavelength is associated with a high frequency in the EM spectrum. The problem with visible light is that it's a limited part of the EM spectrum you miss out on a lot of other detail that other parts of the EM spectrum can provide for us. Another issue with visible light is dust. Dust can prevent us from capturing all the details of an image. And this is where radio telescopes become a game changer. Radio telescopes are used to amplify the weak radio light coming off of stars, black holes, galaxies, and the rest of outer space. Radio waves cover the frequency range of 30 hertz to 300 gigahertz. At 30 hertz, the wavelength is 10,000 kilometers, and at 300 gigahertz, the wavelength is 1 millimeter. So at 30 hertz, the wavelength is almost the diameter of the Earth. At 300 gigahertz, it's shorter than a grain of rice. Whoa. Yeah. Crazy town. Okay. So just to break that down. The smaller the frequency, the larger the wavelength. Yes. So 30 hertz has the really long wavelength. Mm-hmm. But 300 gigahertz, which is the higher frequency, has the really short wavelength. That's right. Because what essentially frequency is, is it's frequency. It's how frequent does this happen. And so the more frequent it happens, the shorter of a wavelength or the shorter of a period of repetition you need. Exactly. Sometimes science is in the names... Sometimes it's not at all, and it's really confusing. (laughs) (laughs) So true, and so unfortunate. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Anna. I was doing that as much for my benefit as for all of you. (laughs) I love it. All right, so what radio telescopes can observe is a subset of the radio wave's frequency range that I just mentioned. So a radio telescope can observe one millimeter to over 10 meters long in wavelength. And a reminder, yes. visible light is only on the order of a few hundred nanometers. In particular, our subject of this episode, the Arecibo telescope can observe wavelengths from one centimeter to one meter, covering the frequency oh. range of 10 gigahertz to 300 megahertz. Gotcha. So you're essentially cutting out that really low frequency, really large wavelength section of the range. Exactly. Gotcha. That kind of makes sense. The cool thing about radio is that we can engineer transmitters to emit radio waves. So we can use antenna to receive radio waves, but we can also use transmitters to send out radio waves. Our antenna will capture how our emitted radio waves get reflected off of planetary bodies. The most critical component of a radio telescope is the antenna. Antennas are used to receive the radio waves. So if you remember, old cars would have that long, skinny, metal, twig-like structure at the front um, so you can receive (laughs) radio and listen to your tunes in your car. Yeah, I gotcha. I feel like um, VW bugs. I always have them. Yeah, exactly. Or like the old radios, like the handheld radios that would have that long, skinny metal antenna that you would have to pull up. It it was expandable. Yeah, it would like you would like it would have a notch into the top of the radio. So you would have to like unhook it from the notch yeah. and then expand it. Yep. Exactly. So those are metal dipole antennas. They are the most basic and one of the most common types. The Arecibo telescope in itself uses a spherical dish reflector antenna. 
This antenna was built to occupy the sinkhole at the Arecibo Observatory near Arecibo, Puerto Rico. And it's absolutely massive. Anne is going to get into a lot more details about this, but I'm going to just cover a bit. It's huge. It's huge. It has a diameter of about 305 meters, and the parabolic dish surface is made of 38,778 aluminum panels. It's just insane. Yeah. It was the second largest single-dish radio telescope to be constructed. All right, so let's think about how much data it can capture. The antenna may be situated in a sinkhole, but Earth rotates so the telescope can capture a significant portion of the sky during the day and night. Something to note is that it can work during the day because we're no longer looking at visible light being reflected off of planetary bodies. Oh, God. yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't it's matter. the radio waves, which are impervious to whether or not it's night or day. Right. And when I read that, it made a lot of sense, but I just didn't think about it. <laughs> I didn't think about it either until you said it. And I was like, you're right. Radio waves don't care. Exactly. Interesting. So in this giant spherical antenna, radio waves get collected uh, in this dish they actually bounce off the reflective surface and get captured by sub-reflectors that direct the radio waves to specific horn antenna, which look like little horns. Mm -hmm. These horn antenna are also called feed horns. To observe a specific wavelength range, you'll have a specific sized horn to grab the radio frequency of radio waves you want. So within that range that Arecibo collects, basically to summarize, is that it has these feed horns that will then filter specific ranges within the overall range of radio frequency. And attached to these antenna are complex radio receivers that will amplify the signals, and basically making them stronger, and convert them into signals that can be read by a computer. So now the question becomes, well, how do you make radio waves into pictures? Yeah, I was just about to say, I was like, okay, it sends the data, it has receivers to get the data back. How does that become an image? Yeah, this is a good question. Well, let's just think about what a picture is. A picture is made of tiny squares called pixels. Each pixel carries information about the radio waves coming from a point in space. So let's say you have two pixels right next to each other. Yes. One pixel is, is conveying information from one spot in space. The second okay. pixel that's next to it will be conveying information from the spot that's next to that first spot in space. Okay, I gotcha. So you have pixel one and pixel two. Pixel one is giving you information about the pixel one place in space. And pixel two is giving you information about pixel two's place in space. Right. And those two places in space are next to each other. Gotcha. So based on the signals from the receivers, some pixels will represent stronger radio waves and some will represent weaker radio waves. And basically what uh, mathematicians and scientists have done in their code is that they will assign a number to each strength level of a radio signal. So if it's a weak signal, assign a a one to it, and if it's a little stronger, assign a four to it, and so on. After all the pixels have been assigned with a number describing the strength of the radio waves for that pixel, assign colors to those numbers, and then put all of that together and you get a picture. Oh. So this is a huge simplification of the process. A lot of math goes into this process. A lot of code goes into this process. Like, for example, you can imagine that the timing of when the radio waves are captured to, yeah. to like, you know, latency between the waves and how, and are we looking at uh, one point in space at one particular time, if that's being captured uh, correctly and accurately, like all of this is very critical. So a lot of math goes into it. But yeah, that's all I have for the technical description of radio telescopes. That was awesome. Thanks. Um, I'm really excited right. to hear about the history of Arecibo. I'm excited to give it to you. But first, let's take a break. We'll be right back. We'll be back. 
we're back i'm excited to talk about the history on this one yeah anna let's get into it i'm excited to hear about it let's do this so as we have already i just wrote this line that went the arecibo observatory is a radio telescope located in arecibo puerto rico (laughs) solid entrance there i love it we got it we just went for it all right Um, The origins of the Arecibo Observatory can be traced back all the way into the 1950s. So at this point in history, the American economy was was flourishing after World War II, and I wrote the years down, 1939 to 1945, and then after the years I wrote, I put the years in here for myself as much as I do for all of you. You would think (laughs) I would memorize them the number of times I have looked this up for this podcast, but here we are. So, the World War II was over, but at this point, the Cold War was in its infancy. There's this fear in the U.S. that communism was going to destroy American society, and with that, democracy and capitalism. It's actually really interesting. I just watched a TV show called The Queen's Gambit. I think I mentioned it in my last, in our last episode, but they hint at this. They hint of this, essentially, this fear of communism, which is interesting because it was prevalent for this time period in U.S. history. It's a really great show. And yeah, just like Anna said, it was set back during this time. Yeah. Um, and they never yeah. say it outright, but they hint of this like fear of communism. And it is a good show. Oh, yeah. I haven't gotten enough into it, like into the episodes to catch on to that, but I do need to revisit that show. Yeah, it's really good. I don't think that's spoilers, though. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. <laughs> so uh, we've also talked about this before, but with this came something called the Red Scare. We actually talked about this in our Project Blue Book episode, but just directly from History.com. The Red Scare was hysteria over the perceived threat posed by communists in the U.S. during the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States. More or less, what I'm trying to get out here is that tensions were high in the U.S. and the fear of nuclear weapons was prevalent. In 1958, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, or ARPA, was authorized by then-President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Their mission was to, and in quotes, expand the frontiers of technology and science far beyond immediate military requirements. And that was a direct quote from the Dwight D. Eisenhower Memorial Commission. Actually, so in 1972, it was renamed the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and it's what we now know today as DARPA. Oh! Yeah, they just threw a D in front of there. But... (laughs) Gotcha. Back to the content you signed up for and not... Uh, Amateur History 101. (laughs) One of ARPA's first projects was Defense Project Defender, which focused on ABM, or Anti-Ballistic Missile Defenses. So this is why I talked about the Cold War. In order to efficiently track nuclear warheads, more needed to be understood about Earth's ionosphere. This is where I really ended up in just a a hole of, a rabbit hole of interesting and crazy The ionosphere is the layer of Earth's atmosphere, which has been ionized by solar and cosmic radiation. If you want to look more into what that means, I highly recommend you Google it. It's really interesting. Yeah, you can Google um, the atmosphere of Earth and you'll see the layers. If you look at Google Images, you'll see how the layers have been uh, broken down by altitude. uh, And then you'll see where the ionosphere falls. It's really cool. It's located 75 to 1,000 kilometers above Earth's surface. Within the ionosphere, the high energy from the sun and cosmic rays stripped the atoms of one or more electrons, turning them into positively charged ions, hence ionization and therefore ionosphere. The ionized particles behave as free particles. Again, if you want more info on what all of that means, like Hannah said, please Google it. It's very interesting. Connecting back to Arecibo, this is where this comes in. Arecibo was built and designed with the intention of studying the F layer of the ionosphere. This is really where I was like, I knew there was an ionosphere. I didn't know it had lettered layers. Right. (laughs) So the F layer or F region is the highest region of the ionosphere, starting at about 150 kilometers or 93 miles to 500 kilometers or 310 miles above Earth's surface. What's special about the F layer is that it has the highest electron density, meaning that any signals which penetrate it will be reflected into space, which is why there was so much focus on studying it. I even wrote, I was like, yeah, because those signals get 
reflected into space. Anna, I'm so glad you went down this rabbit hole because I saw half a sentence. I read half a sentence about Arecibo and the ionosphere, and I was like, nope, this is not related to the section I need to research. I'll come back to it. And I'm so glad you went into so much detail. Right. I literally was so conflicted about whether or not to go into it. And I was finally like, I feel like this is useful for the reason Arecibo exists. Yes. That's what I also saw in my research for uh, Arecibo, Arecibo's findings, uh, prominent findings, which I'll get into later, that the ionosphere, it's that kind of research was a big deal. Right? Because we didn't know anything about it. I actually was researching this when I was visiting my family that I was fortunate enough to do for the holidays. My mom's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm trying to learn about the left layer of the ionosphere. She was just like, all right, <laughs> I will leave you alone. It's <laughs> like, I don't know how I got here, but I'm in it. So I'm committed. So on top of investigating the F layer, the added bonus of Arecibo was its additional use as a general purpose scientific radio observatory, which Hannah talked about, and she'll talk more about their observations later. But the design was overseen by physicist and astronomer William William Edwin Gordon from Cornell University. The original design consisted of a large, fixed, parabolic reflector, so it would face a single direction and never be able to move. It kind of made me think of if you just think of like a giant antenna with one of those bowls, like one of those direct TV antennas. I feel like you see them in movies a lot. It's just huge. I think that's what they were going for. While this would allow for observation and study of the ionosphere, it limited its uses in other areas of research, including radar astronomy, radio astronomy, and atmospheric science. And I think the idea was if they're going to spend all this money and put in all this infrastructure, they want it to be able to have a lot of uses, which makes sense. Yeah. But in order to do that, it needs to have the ability to track different points, meaning that the radar dish would need to move and it could not be fixed. This wasn't an easy task just due to the dish's necessary diameter. It was huge, as Henna already mentioned. Gordon calculated the dish would need to be 305 meters or 1,000 feet in diameter in order to properly analyze the ionosphere. And at the po- at this point in time, it was the largest of its kind. There's since been a larger one built in what I believe is China. But Gordon, along with the AFCRL, or the Air Force Cambridge Research Laboratory, this is a acronym heavy episode developed the idea for a bowl-shaped reflector which would be fixed into the ground with a movable receiver hanging above it so it's this bowl and then suspended above it is this movable receiver and what this would do is it would allow for the beam to point within a 20 degree range of the bowl's zenith so the zenith is essentially just the point directly above it essentially it, it, it could see a 20 degree circle centered at the center of the dome. I really liked the word center there. I had a good time with the word. <laughs> I had a good time with the word center. So it could see in a 20 degree circle around from the middle. Does that make sense? Yeah. So instead of moving that ginormous dish yeah. around that was a thousand feet, basically three football fields. Yeah. You couldn't do it or you'd break it. You, It'd be impossible to do it. So they're... Gordon's uh, solution was, let's make the receiver movable. Exactly. Gordon's initial idea involved suspending the receiver on top of a 435-foot or 133-meter tower in the center of the dish. However, this would require putting infrastructure on the center of the dish, which would be the most important part. So it would be like sticking hardware on top of the most important part of the dish. And nobody wanted to do that. Right. So then George, oh no. (laughs) There's a lot of letters in that last name. There's so many, so many nouns. (laughs) Dunalakis? That was pretty good. Thanks. We're going to go with that one. I'm not even going to try again. We're just going to commit. Who directed research at General Bronze Corporation in Garden City, New York, along with his brother, oh no, (laughs) Helios (laughs) Dunalakis. I want to say that's that seems that seems reasonable. A civil engineer nice. and Zachary Sears, who was the director of internal design at Digital B and E Corporation, New York, came up with the idea came up with the design of a suspending of a suspending came up with the design of suspending the receiver with four cables from four towers. 
Very cool. Yes, and this actually will come into play later. In order to get the most out of the telescope's limited range of motion, it needed a location where the sun, moon, and planets would pass almost directly overhead. Actually, I want to talk about this for a second. And this is going to come into play later. So essentially what they're doing is instead of putting infrastructure in the center of the dish, they're putting these towers along the perimeter of the dish and connecting the platform with cables. Yeah, so you've got, their initial idea was four towers. In the final design, they ended up only doing three. So you have these three towers around the outskirt of this dish. Each of them has cables connected to it. And in the middle, connected to all of those towers, is the receiver. Does the receiver move up and down these cables? So that's the thing. That's the part that can move. Okay, so what's that thing we do when we go, what's the sky? What is it that you run on the sky? Yeah, it's kind of like attached to zip lines. Zip lines. It's like a receiver is zip lining across the t- the dish. Yes, kind of. Yeah, kind of. It's suspended like that on these metal cables. And this will come into play later. But for right now, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. In order to get the most out of the telescope's limited range of motion, as we mentioned, that receiver can move, but really with only within a 20-degree circle, it needed a location where the sun, moon, and planets would pass almost directly overhead. This brings us to Puerto Rico, which is at 18.2208 degrees north latitude. I just wrote from. From what? <laughs> from the equator? <laughs> Maybe. Arecibo specifically is at 18.47245 degrees north. So today, the Earth, this will make sense in a minute. The Earth's axis is tilted at 23.5 degrees from the orbital plane. This means that there is a period where the sun would be directly overhead. So Arecibo is at 18.47. The Earth is tilted at 23.5. So we're not exactly there because obviously Puerto Rico is not on the equator. But it is mean that the sun would be directly overhead at periods within the year. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the reason why they went with Puerto Rico. One of the first steps... That makes sense. Yeah. It literally took me a minute. I was reading a paper and they were like... They needed stuff to pass overhead, so they put it in Puerto Rico. And I was like, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> like, there was no it's, no explanation. I was like, wait, what? Like, You know, I noticed that in my research, is that when I come across, especially, like, news articles, they'll just make the statement, and in my brain, I am like, did you just copy-paste this from the technical paper? Because I have n- I'm not following yeah. what this is saying. They're like, we needed stuff to pass overhead, so Puerto Rico. I was like, that's... The heck? Yeah, I was like, no, 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 do not hang up the phone. Like, <laughs> I would like some more explanation. So I had to Google it myself. Um, and it took a minute, but I'm pretty sure that's what's going on there. Gotcha. Yes. One of the first steps in the design phase was finding a location to build it. In order to decrease construction costs, Gordon was hoping to find a large cavity or sinkhole which would provide the perfect place to build the large dish. And as Hannah mentioned, they actually did find one. So, the karst region of Puerto Rico offered exactly what he was looking for, a natural sinkhole located just south of the city of Arecibo, and that became the location for the Arecibo Observatory. Construction started in mid-1960 and went on for three years for a total cost of $9.3 million. So a lot of dollars. But not as much as I expected. The receiver is supported by more than five miles or eight kilometers of one-inch thick steel cable. The completed Arecibo Observatory sits on a 48-hectare, 118-acre site outside of the city of Arecibo, Puerto Rico. In 1969, six years after its opening, ownership of the observatory was transferred from the Department of Defense, the DOD, to the National Science Foundation. The NSF renamed it to the National Astronomy and Ionosphere Center, or the NAIC, and added Cornell as the site operator. It had a staff of 140 people at the site and additional 15 staff members at the NIC headquarters in Ithaca, New York, on the campus of Cornell University. In 2011, the NSF removed Cornell as the site operator and replaced them with a team led by SRI International. This apparently made it so the observatory could be used for a larger range of projects. Uh, Anna, what does SRI stand for? Where are they based? SRI is the Stanford Research Institution, and it's located in 
Where is it like that? Menlo Park. Manlo? Menlo. M-E-N. Menlo Park, California. I'm just having a... Oh, well, that's the second Google thing that showed up. So I'm killing it. (laughs) That's a good question, (laughs) Hannah. Actually, on their website, they have a whole thing saying that they have... Um, ind- it's an independent nonprofit research institute with the with a rich history of supporting government and industry. So yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, that their, makes sense. It's in in Silicon Valley. On their website, they have a whole bunch of links to really cool research projects they're working on, including like expanding cancer immunotherapy, emotion detection, and tech. So sweet. Yeah, it looks like they're doing some really cool stuff. But that's awesome. Yeah. So they did take over Arecibo for a while. And then I'm going to kind of jump back a little bit. So once it was completed, it wasn't done. Throughout the years, it went through a series of upgrades. The first one took place in 1973. Before the upgrade, the surface of the primary dish was a half-inch galvanized wire mesh, resulting in a maximum occup- resulting in a maximum operating frequency of about 500 megahertz. This was replaced with 38,000 individually adjustable aluminum panels hannah talked about this this actually raised the so high- many yeah that was like thirty eight thousand. this <laughs> this actually raised the highest usable frequency to about five thousand megahertz so i thought that was cool yeah and the total cost of this upgrade was an additional nine million dollars but it sounds like it was a really useful upgrade dang because the the observatory itself cost nine million to begin with. Yeah, nine point three, and I it think. doubled with the upgrade. Yeah, so it was nine point three to build it, and an extra nine million for this upgrade. So we're at eighteen point three million. And then in nineteen ninety seven, a Gregorian reflector system was installed. This incorporated a secondary and tertiary reflector, which allowed for radio waves to be focused at a single point. After this, an accompanying suite of receivers was then installed, which covered the full range between one. To 10 gigahertz so it eventually did make it to the entire radio wave spectrum but it took it took till 1997 so more than 30 years these could easily be moved to a focal point providing Arecibo more flexibility and then we're getting there i promise a metal mesh screen was installed around the perimeter to block any thermal radiation from the ground from reaching the feed antennas and a 2400 megahertz transmitter was also installed as the final feature of this upgrade. And then that is the entire history of Arecibo. Well, unfortunately, there's it's not the end, but we'll get there. That's right. But first, Hannah's going to talk to us about some notable observations. That's right. But before we do that, shall we take a break? Let's do it. Let's do it. We'll be back. We'll be back. We're back. Hen and I were laughing about TikToks. We were. <laughs> I, like, for the longest time was like, I'm not going to get a TikTok. I'm too old. Let me just get comfortable on my throne of superiority. I was wrong. It's very fun. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's I, a huge time waste, though. It's hilarious. Like, my sister will show oh me God. TikToks. I haven't given in yet. Um, But partially because my desire to watch tiktoks is pretty well filled by my sister and anna <laughs> when they so send me I videos got a tic- <laughs> i got a tiktok in order to start making tiktok videos which you can watch under anna is anxious but oh man people are so funny they're just so funny they're hilarious i was just telling anna about um so we both are watching the bachelor this season we are neither of us are proud but it's where we're at <laughs> exactly. victoria is the worst i'm hoping she's not a real person and that it's like a she's obviously a real person but i'm hoping this isn't her personality oh my gosh and it's just a yeah. plan <laughs> i love how her um how she's queen victoria and she goes by her occupation is queen she goes by queen yeah it's what it says under her name. And on one level, I almost respect it. <laughs> um, Maybe be a little nicer. <laughs> and I was just telling Anna about the scene, and she's watched it too, where uh-huh. the main bachelor, I don't remember his name. <laughs> we think it's Matt, but we're not 100% on that. <laughs> Something like that. And so 
Matt, he takes out a giant, not even a giant, it's like some rando piece of log that's sitting on the ground and situates it standing up and takes an axe and tries to cut it in half to make this like very attractive (laughs) scene. And I just could not stop laughing. And someone on TikTok recreated the scene for their girlfriend and their girlfriend is just like, what are you doing? Like, he just, like, picks up a piece of wood and is, like, just grabbing an axe. Like, where did the axe come from? (laughs) What are you doing right now? And it's funny. It's not supposed to be funny, which makes it funny. So I need to find this TikTok of somebody recreating this. Uh, It was just Because I bet that's hilarious. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, I know what I'm doing when we're done recording this. Such a good break from our day jobs. (laughs) It is. And, like, they're just a couple. They're just a minute at most. So you can run, uh, which is a downside if you're like, I'm just going to watch one more. Yeah, exactly. And then you've watched a lot of TikToks. Yeah. And then an hour goes by. <laughs> Oops. Oops. All right, Hannah. Uh, <laughs> Back to the content that everyone actually asked for. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the, not just whether or not what we feel, whether or not we can remember the name of the current Bachelor. <laughs> what? Tell us a little bit more about Arecibo. Yeah. So I'm going to just run through uh, some notable discoveries that were made using our Arecibo. But warning, these are only a few of the many discoveries that have made that have been made using this observatory. But I'm just going to go through a couple that I found really cool. Please do. All right, so let's go ahead and go in uh, chronological order. So back in 1967, Data captured from Arecibo indicated that the rotation of Mercury on its axis is 59 days and not the 88 that was initially estimated. So that was one of the first discoveries, and that was pretty cool. That's neat. Yeah. Moving on to 1974, when data from Arecibo found the first ever binary pulsar. Because of this data, the 1993 Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to the scientists working on uh, this this discovery. So what's a binary pulsar? It's a two-part star system, and in this specific instance, it has a neutron star, which is the collapsed core of a massive supergiant star, and a pulsar, which is a compact star that radiates beams of EM radiation, which is just freaky to think about. It's like, yeah, that's crazy. It's insane when you really start thinking about the the star structures that are out there. And how old they have to be. Oh, yeah, completely. To reach those phases. That blows my mind sometimes. Like, I can't fathom time that long. Yeah. It's just insane. All right, moving on to 1981, Arecibo data was used to create the first radar maps of the surface of Venus. That I thought That's cool. Yeah, I thought that was pretty nifty. The hottest planet in our galaxy? Yeah. Or in the Milky Way, excuse me. The hottest planet in the Milky Way? Mhm. Yeah, when I read this, I it clicked like, "Oh yeah, we're making we're making maps of the surface of this planet, not just figuring out that's out there. You know, we're getting more and more yeah, data from it." What's also cool about it is because Venus is hot and very and far away, like in order to actually get a map of the surface, I don't even know if we have the technical ability to do that right now. Yeah. Like by landing something on it and actually getting a map by exploring it. Right. So the fact that we can do that with the radio telescope is really cool. Yeah. Without having to send an actual orbiter or a rover to the planet. Yeah, because who knows how many years away we could even be from that information otherwise. Mm-hmm. Very nifty. All right. In 1992, Arecibo made another big discovery. It discovered the first ever exoplanet. Woo! Woo! That's a cool one. And now we have so many. (laughs) We have so many now. So many. I would highly recommend going and checking out the NASA's exoplanet archive. Uh, There's just... They have a very great visualization tool where you can uh, pick a specific region of the... Uh, night sky and it'll zoom in and you can go explore the different exoplanets that they've documented nasa has some pretty awesome tools for that yeah the nasa website has some awesome stuff on it yeah they're just they have such a great visualization team yeah they really do i definitely recommend checking it out yeah 
another discovery that I particularly found really cool was in 2008, Arecibo was used to discover methanamine and hydrogen cyanide molecules in a galaxy 250 million light years away. Now, the reason why this is particularly cool is because these molecules are organic mo- are organic molecules that amino acids are made of. Whoa. So I thought that 250 was 250 million nifty. light years away? Yeah. Wow. It's insane. So that's another great thing about the radio telescope is that we can just detect incredible detail that's so far from reach that we could really you know get to with a probe at this point that's insane yeah yeah so a light year is literally how long it would take light to how far light could travel within a year Mm -hmm. and so if you were traveling at the speed of light it would take you 250 million years to get there exactly so that's insane yeah. But yeah, this is one of those other concepts, like Anna mentioned earlier, where the definition is in the term itself. <laughs> it helps you out. It helps Not you out. Not always true, but it's nice when it does. <laughs> like... All right. So there are plenty of other discoveries, but for the sake of this episode, I'll stop here. Uh, but I do want to talk about how we used Arecibo to send data out into the ethers. And Yay! Yeah. <laughs> so... This process of sending data out, a message out into the universe, was called was is referred to as the Arecibo message. So back in 1974, a group of scientists decided to send a message about humanity on Earth out to globular star cluster M13. I love the wording <laughs> on the SETI website. SETI is uh, stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. On their website, they had in quotes, uh, in quotes, they had message aimed at our putative cosmic companions. Oh, I, cosmic companions. Cosmic I companions. like that. And the word putative, which means respectable. <laughs> I was about to say, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I had to look it up. Uh, it's like, uh, like, all I can think about is like, you're gracious. Exactly. Like when you had like old kings or queens or whatever. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel that. Television. <laughs> I'm like, just television in general. Oh my God. I love that. That's amazing. I loved it. Cosmic companions is what I'm going to start calling my friends now. <laughs> Please. You're my cosmic companion, Hannah. <laughs> my cosmic companion, Anna. I love it. <laughs> it's so great. All right, so when I started learning about the Arecibo message, I immediately thought the primary purpose of this was to talk to aliens, but actually the primary intention was to prove that as humans, we we have advanced to this point where we can send messages using radio waves out into our multiverse. Oh, that makes sense. Right, it's just like, it's just a celebration of our technological accomplishments. I think that's lovely. I do too. Another question came to mind was, why did they choose star cluster M13? It is 25,000 light years away from Earth. And technically, this is actually a close star cluster. So that's why it was chosen. It's it's relatively (laughs) close to us. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. So this message contained... 1,679 bits of data that actually form an image. So if you Google Arecibo message and take a look, you'll see this long rectangular image um, that, of course, when it's sent, it didn't convey colors, but they've colored it. You'll see the color, the image full of color um, when you Google it. And it legitimately reminded me of, you know, the old school Space Invaders video game. It looks just like it. I just Googled it, and it's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> it looks like almost like you could print it out and make it a bookmark, like it's long and skinny. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It looks like it's got a little alien. A, a little alien, a little human, some UFO-looking yes. structure. Oh, my God. Fascinating. It, it, well, it amazed me. This is so cool. But, yeah, Anna, that's what I have for notable achievements and this cool Arecibo message. That was awesome. I also think what um, 
tying into what henna said so Aracy was also been really commonly used in pop culture. One of the most popular ones, one of our favorites that we've talked about before, is it's the observatory used in the movie Contact. Yes. Yeah, it's got a bunch of other pop culture references, too. I was actually just watching a TV show. Man, you're all going to think I only watch terrible television. (laughs) I was watching a TV show on Netflix. It's an old MTV game show called Are You the One? I wouldn't recommend it. It's not that good, except I watched all of the seasons. Oh, my gosh. I've seen the trailer. It looks fun. It is fun. It is fun. That's a good word for it. It's kind of ridiculous, but it's fun. Um, they actually go to Arecibo at one point, and I was like, oh my god, what? <laughs> no way. Yeah, because one of the, like, they go to, every season they go to a different tropical location, and one of them was in Puerto Rico. Okay, they didn't actually go to the observatory. <laughs> no, they did. And then they brought a group of people to the observatory. Oh, very to cool. To the Arecibo observatory. Yeah. I was like, wow, MTV, I didn't expect that out of you. I love that. All right. And then I am going to cap this off with, unfortunately, we're getting to a little bit of the sad part, but don't worry. But I don't I don't know how to make that sound good. Yeah. We're just going to have to say it how it is, Anna. That's right. We're getting into the sad part, but it is how it is. We can't leave information off the table because we don't like it. Exactly. All right. Quick break first. Let's do it. As I've mentioned, we unfortunately have reached the sad part of our episode, which is why Arecibo has been in the news so much lately. As I'm sure many of you know, because if you're listening to this, you're probably a space nerd, or you're a member of my family, at which point, hey, hopefully I'll see you in person (laughs) next Christmas. Um, I love that. (laughs) But in 2017, after Hurricane Maria, Arecibo sustained significant damage. The NSF considered the possibility of retiring it, However, a consortium led by the University of Central Florida came forward and offered to cover a large portion of the cost to repair it, but to also maintain it. In 2018, UCF were made the new operators and Arecibo was saved, Eh, for a short while at least. So things were looking up in 2018, but then very unfortunately, on August 10th, 2020, an auxiliary cable which connected the 900 metric ton platform, or 2,200 pounds, to one of the towers broke creating a 100-foot dash in the dish. So at this point, we have that... Remember, you have those three towers, and there's a receiver in the middle connected by cables? One of the auxiliary cables snapped. So that means it wasn't the whole cable. It was like one of the supporting cables snapped. And so what ended up happening is when it snapped, it cut a huge gash into the dish, which was already awful and really sad. However, this was a big deal because and engineers were advised to take all reasonable steps and use any available funds, this ended up being millions of dollars, to analyze the situation and determine how to address it. A cable snapped, so you can't just like get in there and fix it because you're under this 2,200 pound suspended load. Mm-hmm. So until you figure out exactly why that cable snapped, you can't do a whole lot. So engineers determined that the structure was stable and they were planning to make repairs. However... On November 6th, 2020, a main cable to the same tower as the auxiliary cable that broke also snapped. This was, yes, this was awful. It was unexpected. The cable had a three inch diameter and it broke at what should have only been 60% of its minimum breaking strength. So it wasn't even at what was expected to be its minimum breaking strength. Wow. So nobody expected this cable to break. And while this event alone was concerning... It opened up the possibility that the remaining cables, which were now under more load because they lost one, were weaker than expected. That's awful. Yes. So all the remaining cables were analyzed, and it was determined that the likelihood of another cable failing was high, making it unsafe to repair this telescope. This 2200-pound receiver was being held up by these cables. It was just too dangerous to have anybody near there, because it could collapse at any time. Even conducting the necessary stress tests on the structure could have resulted in collapse. The structure was that delicate. So unfortunately, it was decided that since any actions to stabilize or repair the structure would require workers to be near the telescope and the uncertainty of the cable strength was too high, 
it would be too dangerous to complete the work, and a controlled decommission was the only safe plan of action. So a controlled decommissioning is essentially just like a controlled demolition. Mm-hmm. I thought that this was sad. It was really sad, but I understood why they did this. They have to prioritize the safety of the workers. And I thought at first that this was just the end of the story and it would be safely demolished and we would all be sad about it, but it was not. On December 1st, another cable snapped, causing the platform to crash down into the dish. It snapped the top off of all three towers. It's just heartbreaking. There's footage of this online. We'll have it linked in article into our sources of um, from nature.com. It was just heartbreaking. Like, we already knew it was going to be decommissioned, but to watch the whole thing just break like that was so sad. Yeah. That is so heartbreaking. You know, just thinking about the hours of engineering work, of construction labor, um, just all all the science that went into making this a possibility. So on one end, it's heartbreaking. But then, you know, on the, on the other end, it had a really great run. Like, there are so oh, yeah. many discoveries that Arecibo, uh, that Arecibo did. It, it's going to have a really long legacy. Unfortunately, this is also not the end of radio telescopes. As I kind of mentioned earlier in the history section, Arecibo was the largest radio telescope until 2016, when mm-hmm. something called FAST, or the 500-meter aperture spherical telescope, opened in China. Then this became the largest radio telescope in the world. And actually what's interesting is that after the official collapse or decommissioning of Arecibo, FAST is now opening its doors to astronomers from around the world. So essentially they're making it, um, they're trying to make it increasingly open to the international community. And that's a direct quote from an article from space.com. That's wonderful. I love that. Yeah. I thought that was great. Actually, it's a direct quote from... Wang Kingming, the chief inspector of FAST's operations and development center. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's awesome. Like, they're like, we lost a radio telescope, but we still have one. I thought that was really lovely. Like, it's a mm-hmm. nice ending to a sad story. Yes, I like that. But, yeah, thank you, Arecibo. We will miss you. All right. And with that, do you want to close it out for us, Hannah? Sure, I'd love to. All right, so if you liked our podcast and would like to leave us a comment or want to suggest any episode ideas for us, go ahead and visit our website at www.butitisrocketscience.com. We have a contact us page there. If you want to leave us a review, we would absolutely love to hear from you, and you can do do so at Apple Podcasts. If you want to find us online, you can also find us on our Instagram uh, at but it is rocket science. You can find us on Twitter at but it is RS, and you can find us on our Facebook page uh, when you look up the but it is rocket science Facebook page. Exactly. And then we've gotten so many really sweet notes from a bunch of you in our email from our contact us page at our website. Thank you so much. They're so nice. I know it sometimes takes us a little while to respond, but that doesn't mean we don't love your messages. Yeah, we really appreciate them. And when one of us gets to the message first, we always send a screenshot and send it to the other person. They really make our entire day. We've said this a couple times, but it just blows my mind that you're all out there. (laughs) That people are listening to us more than our moms. (laughs) Yes. But we really appreciate it. Thank you. Because we're coming on a year. Yeah. January 21st. That's right. We're going to have done this for a whole year. We're still friends. 26 episodes down. (laughs) Uh, A true achievement. (laughs) A true achievement. It's a lot of work. There's nobody else I'd rather do it with. Same, Anna. Thank you. (laughs) All right, Anna, do you want to get into your sources? I do. Let me pull them up. Okay, to start off, I have a nature.com article about Arecibo. I have a Wikipedia about the Arecibo Observatory. I have two History.com pages about the Cold War. One about the Cold War, one about the Red Scare. I have a NewScientist.com article about DARPA. I have the Web Archive about Eisenhower. The An article from Stanford.edu about the ionosphere. An art, uh, Britannica, Britannica.com describing the F region of the ionosphere. Um, a, an article from ETHW.org about Arecibo. 
the la- another, the latitude and longitude.org of Arecibo. A NASA article which basically just describes what the Earth's tilt is. Um, I don't know why I went to a NASA article for that. <laughs> um, an NSF article about Arecibo, a nature.com article about Arecibo. This is the one that has the actual crash, which is heartbreaking. Um, SRI.com, that's Stanford Research Institute. And then the space.com episode, the space.com article I mentioned about China's fast radio telescope. And that's what I got. All right. So I've got a schoolobservatory.org article on Arecibo, a wikipedia.org article on the Arecibo telescope, uh, the NRAO, National Radio Astronomy Observatory.edu article on radio telescopes, a TED talk on how radio telescopes work. Um, the TED talk is titled How Radio Telescopes Show Us Unseen Galaxies by Natasha Hurley. A wikipedia.org article on the electromagnetic spectrum. Another NRAO article on how to make an image from radio data. A Wikipedia article on the Hulse-Taylor binary. A Wikipedia article on a neutron star. Wikipedia article on Pulsar. (laughs) Just looking up the (laughs) basic definitions of those. Uh... And then an NSF on an Arecibo fact sheet, a Wikipedia on the Arecibo message, and a SETI.org article on the Arecibo message. All right. Are you ready to close it out for the day? Let's do it. Until next time, space cadets. T minus three, two, one, liftoff. Lift off. Off.